A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This article is taken from the December issue of History Today, which is available to read on our app and to buy as a back issue from our website. The History Today podcast will take a break over Christmas and the new year and return in 2021. Medicine Woman Despite her fragile health and the chauvinism of the time, Susan Anderson brought compassion and competence to the medical profession in a still wild west. By Susan Janusis Read by Greg Johnson The narrative landscape of the American West is defined by stories of endurance, compassion and bravery in the face of seemingly impossible odds. In a small mountain town in the Rocky Mountains, Doc Susie Avenue owes its name to the woman at the heart of one such story. On a fiercely cold, snow-covered night nearing Christmas in 1907, Dr. Susan Anderson arrived in the town of Fraser in Grand County, Colorado. Her pallid face and rattling cough told the railroad conductor that she was suffering from tuberculosis. When Anderson took up residence in a shack on the outskirts of the town, she could barely imagine surviving the winter. The possibility that she had stepped into the community that would be her home and her workplace for the next 50 years seemed as unlikely as her chances of recovery. Born in Indiana in 1870 to parents who divorced when she was just five years old, Susan Anderson's early life was shaped by her father. A restless but astute businessman, William Anderson ensured the family's financial success by relocating to the booming cattle town of Wichita, Kansas, during the 1880s. Susan proved herself a bright, inquisitive child who excelled both at school and at practical frontier living. William pinned his hopes on his daughter after her younger brother John struggled to live up to the high standards he imposed on his children. In her early teens, when Susan announced that she had taught herself Morse code and wanted to be a telegrapher, William dismissed the idea and pushed her towards medicine. By the time the Anderson siblings graduated from Wichita High School in 1891, they had developed a close relationship, drawn together against the overbearing dictates of their father. When gold was found in the hills of nearby Cripple Creek in Colorado, William Anderson uprooted his family on the hunt for a new business venture. The raucous mining town was Susan Anderson's first exposure to the variety of people she would treat over the course of her career. Leaving her family to complete her education, she travelled to Michigan and enrolled at the state's medical college, where she was one of 13 women in a graduating year of 64 students. Over the course of her studies, a newly introduced module on bacteriology left her with an unwavering dedication to cleanliness which became one of her defining features as a physician. You never saw anyone so clean, 
recalled Fraser resident Ruth Phillips in an interview with the writer and mountaineer Janet Robertson in 1986. Anderson graduated in 1897 at the age of 27 and returned to Cripple Creek to join her father. In a town where 30,000 inhabitants were served by 55 physicians, she made a name for herself after rescuing the arm of a boy from amputation. The child had dug into and set off unexploded ammunition, known as bad shot, shattering part of his arm. Anderson's skill at flushing out wounds and ensuring they remained clean meant the surgeon assigned to amputate the limb was not required. Despite her professional success, as the 19th century drew to a close, Anderson suffered two personal tragedies that changed the course of her life, driving her to seek independence. One morning in March 1900, a man all but lost to history called off his engagement to Anderson. Days later, she learned from her father that her brother John was delirious with pneumonia. By the time she reached his side, his condition was beyond treatment. John was my best friend on earth, and now my best friend is in heaven, she wrote in her journal on the 20th of March, 1900. The loss of the two men devastated her and estranged her from the third, her father. She blamed both events on him, and their relationship, always troubled, never recovered. In November 1893, Colorado had become the first state to enact women's suffrage by popular referendum, following a campaign in which female physicians played a vital role. Yet, despite their demonstrable contribution to their communities, female doctors continued to find themselves beneath a glass ceiling when it came to career progression. Anderson discovered this obstacle to be more pronounced in urban centres, where she did not conform to establishment ideas about what a doctor should be. Having moved to Denver, she found herself shut out of the field, despite having the necessary experience to set up a practice. In an interview in 1952, Anderson explained that she gave up on the city because people just didn't believe in women doctors. As a last resort, Anderson took a position as a nurse in the agricultural community of Greeley. The job was exhausting, and, lacking the correct training, she found it monotonous and frustrating. By the summer of 1907, she was forced to acknowledge that she was suffering from tuberculosis. For several years, she had managed to keep the disease at bay and avoided making a diagnosis, but the stress of managing a diphtheria epidemic among the children of the community had allowed it to take hold. At the time, a common treatment was to relocate to higher climates, where the air was considered to be better for the lungs. In December, she boarded a train that took her to Fraser. By the time the spring thaw drove the lumberjacks down from the forest and into the timber mills, Anderson was through the worst of her disease. She had also been presented with an opportunity to display her skill as a physician on a horse. The patient, Dave, had proven uncooperative. Every time I stitched up that wound, he yanked the stitches out with his teeth, Anderson told the journalist Eugene Foster more than 40 years later. Eventually, she pulled him through. Doctors operating on the frontier often found themselves faced with animal patients, and Anderson's skill at treating the animal impressed the town enough that people began to call on her. For women, Living in cabins with husbands and children in isolated settlements, Anderson's presence was a particular comfort too. Their lives were hard, lonely, often frightening, and she listened to their concerns 
with a patience not usually afforded to them by her male counterparts. Early on in her time in Grand County, an experience with a destitute family, the Knutsons, imbued her with an even stronger understanding of the need to educate communities about their dietary and medical needs. Called to tend to a sick baby, she arrived only hours before the child, Agnes, died from scurvy. Neither mother nor child had ever seen a doctor, as the family did not have the money to pay for one. The mother had stopped nursing, and the child developed scurvy because the canned milk she had been given instead did not provide enough nutrition. Dismayed that the death of the child could have been prevented, Anderson informed the husband that, if he failed to send for her the next time his wife went into labour, she would have him thrown in jail. It was a threat she issued several times over the course of her career, and it worked. During her time in Fraser, Anderson delivered over 250 babies, nearly a quarter of the town's population. She rarely took payment for the service. Anderson never forgot the death of Agnes Knutson, recounting the events to Fraser resident Virginia Cornell, when asked if she knew anything about a small, white headstone hidden in the forest. As a single, professional woman in the West, she enjoyed a level of autonomy missing from the lives of her counterparts on the East Coast. But her choice of career left her vulnerable to those who doubted her worth as a physician and sought to humiliate her through sexual harassment. Men frequently called on her, feigning genital issues as an excuse to expose themselves or proposition her. After repeatedly demonstrating her competence as a medical professional, as well as a willingness to put herself in danger to come to the aid of others, the harassment did eventually subside. But her status as a single woman ensured an ongoing and prurient fascination with her romantic endeavours. Various accounts from those who lived in the county attach her to married men, lumberjacks, railroad clerks and any eligible man who happened to pass through the area. Anderson never married, but she was an inherently sociable person who adored the company of others and occasionally displayed a sense of the theatrical. In 1912, the Middle Park Times reported her escapades at a masquerade ball. Dr. Susan Anderson, as Martha Washington, was a very typical character and fooled all of them. Later, in her interview with the Associated Press, Anderson mused that she could have married if she hadn't flown off the handle so much and said poo so many times. Though the community came to love their physician, referring to her affectionately as Doc Susie, carving a life in the unforgiving landscape of Grand County was a treacherous task. Towns like Fraser were mountain-locked, joined together by the railroad if you were lucky, and a perilous horseback ride if you were not. Anderson walked, drove buggies, struggled with skis and rode horses, often combining several modes of transport to reach isolated patients. In 1952, she described one excursion where a blizzard raged so hard I couldn't see the horses in front of the sleigh for the snow. The timber industry provided her with a constant stream of fractured limbs and trips to remote cabins where grateful families ushered her in from the cold. The men who worked the railroad came to her with heart conditions they were too afraid to take to a railroad doctor in case they were fired. Anderson was respected for her reliability and was not deterred from reaching patients, no matter how hazardous the journey. When she could not treat their condition herself, she escorted them to Denver. In the city which had closed its doors to her because of her gender, she gained a reputation as one of the best diagnosticians and hardest-working physicians 
in western Colorado. When the influenza pandemic, or Spanish flu, of 1918 reached Colorado, it ripped through the towns in Grand County. Anderson exhausted herself, travelling from home to home, and her unique method of treating the pneumonia associated with the disease put her in high demand. Placing the patient in a bathtub and draping them in blankets, she poured near-scalding water over them, thumping a fist against their chest to dislodge fluid in the lungs. The method had a high recovery rate, but the disease was so virulent that she rarely made it to patients in time. The disease killed entire families, and abandoned bodies piled up outside local cemeteries. For a country physician with close ties to the people she treated, the experience was devastating. As America entered the 1920s, Anderson would find herself in the path of the railway which had carried her over the mountain to Fraser. In 1923, the Denver and Salt Lake Railroad Company finally started construction on a tunnel that would travel under the Continental Divide. The Denver and Salt Lake Railroad Company was more commonly known as the Moffat Line, after David Moffat, a popular but ill-fated industrialist whose greatest accomplishment during his lifetime was linking Denver to the mountain settlements west of the Divide via a route over the mountains. Rollins Pass with an elevation of 11,660 feet, required workers to risk their lives. The wooden tunnels that lined the pass at its highest points offered some protection from the elements, but when Anderson travelled through them in December 1907, the experience nearly killed her. Coal smoke and other gases built up in the tunnels when the engines remained idle at stations or became stranded. Anderson, with her tubercular lungs, began to suffocate, until the train reached clean air on the other side of the pass. Railroad workers frequently passed out after spending time in the sheds. Those with weaker lungs died. Despite the difficult working conditions, Moffat had been well-liked among his employees. An engine man named George Schreier, who drove the locomotives over the top at Rollins Pass, told Anderson that he allowed drivers to write their own contracts. He had also promised the men a 100% pay rise once the railroad reached Salt Lake City. Moffat's dream for decades was to complete the line to Utah, but by 1911 it had taken the company to bankruptcy and its owner to his grave. The construction of a tunnel beneath the divide was at the forefront of William R. Freeman's mind when he took control of the floundering company in 1917. To plug the financial leak, Freeman embarked on a campaign to slash pay and reduce services immediately alienating himself from his employees and the communities who lived along the line. He openly challenged the railroad unions, and, when the Craig Empire reported a rumoured pay strike, employees came forward accusing Freeman of trying for a year or more to make us strike so that he could hire in cheaper labour from out of state. As their physician, Anderson was well acquainted with the impact Freeman's tenure was having on her community. Nearly a decade later, Anderson would mobilise a group of his workers in a protest against his treatment of them. Freeman may have been unpopular, but the idea of the Moffat Tunnel was not. Communities in the area believed the project was the key to rescuing the area's struggling economy. When news came that the contractors had been appointed, a rush of newcomers appeared in Fraser, keen to capitalise on the influx of workers to the county. At what were to be the east and west portals through the divide, 
camps for the workers and their families began to grow. The lumberjacks Anderson had once treated in forests flocked to the tunnel in search of higher wages. The tunnel contractors went to great lengths to project the image of a vibrant community environment. An account of the construction of the tunnel, The Contractor's Story of the Moffat Tunnel, provides a comprehensive description of the layout of the two camps. Each contained a recreation hall that became the social centre of the communities, with card tables, space for dancing and a theatre that screened films at least once a week. The pictures, however, made little or no money, but added to the attractiveness of camp life, reports the contractor's story, displaying the company's inherent disconnect from the true needs of its workers. Employees paid a fee of $1.50 a month in order to have access to six-bed hospitals on either side of the divide, which were always full, with conditions ranging from broken limbs to gas inhalation. Construction finally began in 1923. Three years later, Anderson accepted the position of county coroner, knowing it would pit her against the Tunnel Commission's desire to quash rumours of overworked employees and unnecessarily dangerous working conditions. One such case was that of George Beagle, whose face was blown off when a drill struck an unexploded charge of dynamite. At the inquest, Anderson's predecessor had been quick to return a verdict of unavoidable accident. In reality, prolonged hours forced on the men by the company exhausted their concentration and deadened reaction times. The verdict ensured no further investigation into working conditions at the site would be necessary. In its coverage of the incident, the steamboat pilot listed four more fatalities that had been written off as accidents. In February 1928, when the tunnel opened, records put the total number of lives lost at 28. The true number was much higher. Men who died of pneumonia from the constant change in temperature moving from the interior to the exterior of the mountain went unrecorded, for example. In addition, many died later in life from complications with their lungs or suffered injuries that ensured they would never work again. Workers found their experiences erased if they did not fit the narrative of progress pursued by the railroad companies. When Anderson was called to the site of the deadliest accident in the building of the tunnel, she found the contractors more irate over the hundred men who had quit due to unsafe working conditions than over the six mutilated bodies pulled from under 100 tons of rock after hours of searching. During her assessment of the incident, Anderson had been hounded by a reporter from the Denver Post. It was not her first run-in with the paper. Two years earlier, one Fred Selak had been beaten and strung up by two young men. His body was cut down three weeks later by Anderson herself. Later, she testified in front of an inquest, knowing that her report would send the two young men to their deaths. The event traumatised her so much that she did not run for coroner again when her term concluded. The Daily Times acknowledged her role in the investigation, but the Post, when reporting on the case, attributed her work to her male predecessor. In the days leading up to the official opening of the tunnel, the area was abuzz with anticipation. Fred Bonfill, the owner of the Denver Post, had, in exchange for exclusive rights to cover the event, promised Bill Freeman a large golden spike which was to be hammered into the ground to commemorate the occasion. 
Anderson, certain that there would be a place in the ceremony for the men who had worked so hard to realise Moffat's dream, was disgusted to discover that Freeman had taken steps to purposefully exclude them, shunting them aside in favour of dignitaries from out of state. On the day of the opening ceremony, she took steps to encourage a protest. A large pair of boards served as a makeshift sign, the words inked in black tar. Workers and their families who had watched Anderson paint the sign rallied around her, inspired by the refusal of their physician to accept the behaviour of the railroad company. Together, the group gathered in a position clearly visible to those on board the train. When the engine finally emerged amid billowing smoke and jubilant cheers, Bill Freeman was confronted by the sight of the employees he had tried so hard to suppress, standing proud beneath the words, We built the tunnel, the post didn't. The Rocky Mountain News printed a photograph of the protest on its front page the following day, delighting in the humiliation of its rival newspaper. To the dismay of many, the tunnel was only a temporary fix for the county's economy. The stations that served Rollins Pass fell into disrepair, and Freeman fired many of those who operated the line. Workers from the tunnel who had once filled the streets of Fraser went west and took their money with them. Anderson did not suffer as much as others in the community, but she witnessed the increasing destitution with a sense of sadness. Respite came in 1939, when the Winter Park Resort opened the area to those looking to ski the Rocky Mountains. Though she was 69 years old and suffering from intermittent ill health, Anderson continued to call on those who needed her. Fashionable young skiers were fascinated by and sceptical of the elderly woman dressed in mismatched winter wear from the turn of the century. Over a 50-year career, Anderson had not only demonstrated her skill as a physician, she had shown herself to be an incredibly courageous woman, concerned with both the health of her patients and that of the world she lived in. She lived her life in relative poverty, but her unwavering dedication to her community ensured she was never short of food, firewood or company. Not until 1947 did the medical establishment officially acknowledge her achievements. On the 14th of June of that year, she was made a member of the Emeritus Club of the Alumni Association of Michigan University in recognition of the longevity of her medical career. When she sat down with the journalist Eugene Foster in 1952, she told him the key to her career had been a steadfast determination to prove that a woman could be a good doctor. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.